the week of August 20th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 627, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Are you okay? Sperling, can yes. you hear me? Yes, I, I right. can hear you. Yeah, and who is this exactly? Well, this is a friend of Hillary. Um, but you know, thank goodness that the the hurricane was downgraded to a tropical storm, and the worst did not happen. Though there's a lot of serious repercussions. I have a friend in Palm Springs. They are cut off. They like the main arteries to Palm Springs are shut down. You can't get in or out of Palm Springs today. But it's mostly the a few main arteries, and they're either flooded or covered in a foot of mud. My friend says if you're downtown, you wouldn't know anything was happening. It'll probably be open tomorrow. So that shows you how vulnerable a lot of cities are and how lucky we got. So really what we're saying here is this is Michael Giltz uh, live from uh, not Los Angeles. That's that, right. That's, I'm that's not, who I'm, I'm talking not, to. I'm not facing and, her. Yeah. yeah. And he's referring to a, a hurricane uh, that uh, occurred over the weekend that turned into a tropical storm. Uh, normally in the month of August, Los Angeles receives exactly zero rain. <laughs> and so we received more rain in one day. I mean, I think it, we received like, I don't know, like two or three inches of rain mm-hmm. uh, yesterday uh, in the space of one day. So, and then, yeah. and, but they were talking about some areas getting the rain they get all year and within a 24 hour period. Yeah, because in the Mojave Desert, they get four inches a year and they got four inches in one day. Well, but so, that's, that's hard to deal with then. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a lot of flooding and, you know, Lots of amber alerts going and emergency alerts going out at three in the morning. I'd like to to thank the uh, the authorities who who made that decision. We're all inside in bed and <laughs> three in the morning. They're making our cell phones blare at the uh, you know at, at high volume. Well, surely there was a reason. What was the what was the alert for? Oh, it was the same alert. It was basically like, "Hey, it's raining really hard outside. It's going to flood." Flood well, alert. But there it's are like, areas right. where it was much more severe than where you were, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's serious. Uh, not so serious as to delay our show this week or next week. We will have a show next week, but we're going to record on a Tuesday. That's right. Monday, so it might be slightly delayed getting out to y'all. So that'll be the reason for that. Um, but you know, it's uh, it's not easy putting on a podcast, and uh, you know, we really depend on the trades. You know, we really depend on the trades because they create a lot of the stories that we comment on, look at, discuss, analyze, and sometimes we even critique them. Of course, that's part of our job. We're media critics. If we think they've missed the ball or gotten something wrong or making the wrong emphasis, we point it out. But you know, we love the trades, but. You know, the Hollywood Reporter, we got to take them to task. They really dropped the ball. Don't you think, Sperling? I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. Oh, my gosh. The Hollywood Reporter did a story on the 40-ish biggest people in podcasting. Somebody got left off. Wait, And it isn't Joe Rogan. It isn't Joe Rogan. Where are we? What, what, please tell me we came in at least 39. Exactly. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Complain to your Hollywood reporter. Cancel your subscription. It's outrageous. I mean, maybe they had that. We were at number 40 tied with someone. They had to decide who do we keep? Who do we let go? And, you know, Trump has the same dilemma. He's got to choose a campaign song, a signature song for his 2024 campaign. And we thought we had a lockdown with Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town. But now... He's got Rich Men North of Richmond by Oliver Anthony. This song just now has debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It has about 30 million views in one week. It's a folkish country screed. 
about America. It's extremely right wing. You've got the pedophilia conspiracy. You've got bitching about this, that, and the other thing. His manager says that God has chosen to speak through Oliver Anthony, which means if you listen to the lyrics of the song that God hates fat people on welfare and paying taxes. Yeah, I was going to say, wait a second. He says some pretty negative things. Oh, yeah. it's, it's really ugly. So, But we've got a link in our show notes to a response song from Billy Bragg. Some guy trying to score a buck or really felt driven did a response song to Jason Aldean's song. It wasn't great. But Billy Bragg is a great artist, a great UK artist. He has a wonderful response song called Rich Men Earning North of a Million. And basically he says, yeah, join a union. <laughs> you don't like the crappy wages you have? Join a union. He says, yeah, you think people, instead of attacking people who are obese, maybe they deserve health care, <laughs> like every well, other country in the world. Join a union. So good for Billy Bragg, and check out that song. But we really got to check our podcast. What are we going to talk about this week? Assuming I didn't just cut you off. Uh, no, I mean, I was going to say that uh, if I were reading into this, my concern would be if you look at the success of Sound of Freedom, and you look at the success of Rich Men North uh, of Richmond, which I assume that he's referring to Yankees. Washington, D.C. Really Yankees. Okay. <laughs> I think it's more generally Yankees, but anyway. Uh, but uh, if you look at that, I'd be very, if I was in politics, I'd be like, hey, you know, the right right-leaning kind of right-wing uh they're they're making hits out of some serious entertainment here that would be a very foolish way to read it it's a country with diverse opinion cancel culture doesn't work very well if you think those opinions aren't allowed because it's the number one song in the country now right after jason aldean had a big hit and sound of freedom is a big hit but guess what's a bigger hit barbie Oppenheimer. Yeah, true. So yeah, relax. It's it's diverse voices. This guy said his piece. I find it ugly. Other people are like, yeah. Well, all right, that's America. We all have different opinions, but everybody agrees. We've got a great podcast. Everybody but the Hollywood Reporter. So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are, uh, of course, you mentioned unions. We're keeping our eyes on the strikes. The WGA, oh, SAG-AFTRA. The union label. Yeah, I don't know that they're singing that because then that might be considered working, in which ah. case that they'd be you know, considered scabs. But uh, happily, talks have commenced between the AMPTP, the producers, networks, and studios, and the WGA, not SAG-AFTRA, not yet. Uh, one sticking point, by the way, as we've discussed in the past, is AI, and a new court ruling just made that debate uh, a little more interesting. Uh, the debate over AI's role in the creative business uh, is is changing. We'll explain. In Iran, a director is in jail for acknowledging the tragedy of a building collapse. That's at least what they're claiming. And in America, everyone keeps asking us the inside scoop about the blind side. Uh, we can't see what the problem is. Get it? Because it's the blind side. Ah. Yeah. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at the historic shift in TV viewing. I feel like we talk about this all the time. More people are streaming shows than watching them on broadcasting cable. We would say things will never be the same, but actually they aren't already. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in, not on the weather this time, but on last week's box office. Oh, I got one more number. All right. Yeah. First of all, we depend on the numbers from all these places like Comscore and Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. When they don't 
write a story about, say, the box office in India or the box office in Korea or the box office in China and Japan, stuff can fall through the cracks. There is a website that gives us the Chinese info on a Monday so we can catch that when it comes out. But a lot of the others, we're really dependent on, on roundups from the trades. And when they don't do them, we're sort of left blind, blindsided, I guess. That would be the, the, the phrase of the day. You know, we were missing a bunch of movies. Uh, we don't have any info from the Korean charts, but I was able to find There out. might be a reason for that. We'll explain. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yes, everybody's too busy in court. <laughs> You're right. We'll get to that in a minute. But in India, we're missing a few movies. And A24, what's going on? We have this Aussie horror flick, Talk to Me, a big Sundance hit. Last week reported it had reached a total of about $46, $47 million. And this week it has reached a total of... Uh, $46, $47 million. It did not fall off the charts. It made $3 million in North America over the weekend alone. It made money all over the world. We just don't know how much. And we don't know why A24 didn't report the numbers. Well, I mean, they're, they're on Box Office Mojo for the weekend. But for some reason, the worldwide box office has not updated. I don't know why. So given all those caveats and the fact that, you know, we don't have access to the numbers, we're pretty confident in saying that the number one movie around the world is No More Bets, a Chinese crime drama. It made $141 million this week. It's just shy of $400 million worldwide. That's a big hit. Barbie's a big hit. Another $95 million. It's now $1,279,000,000. And I have to say, online, there was some annoyance from people that this movie is going to be available digitally, I think, to buy, like $20 on September 5th. They're like, why are you ruining it? We want to see it in the theaters. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it'll I stay in these theaters, but yeah. Well, you know, they made uh, a big thing of saying, we will wait until it is fully met its possible maximum box office because we love box office. And by that, we mean we're going to put it out digitally for sale. Yeah, the early electronic sell-through is what that's referred to as. But when you your early electronic sell-through is $20 and you're selling movie theaters for $14 a ticket, Hey, guess what people are going to do? And it's like 59 days after it came out. What I would do is say, yeah, you can buy it, but you can't watch it until, you know, such and such day. Well, Meaning you, can, pre you pre can pre-order it now, but they don't have to make the date September 5th. But that's what they've done. So Warner Brothers, after loudly proclaiming their love of exhibitors and showing movies in a theater, is undercutting Barbie as it sets records left and right. And I don't see the reason. Do they think they're going to lose out on money if they don't make it available for a sell-through on September 5th? That's bonkers. That makes no sense, right? So I have just, no idea what, the, what, what they're thinking is. And do they be, think they have to have that window before the other windows because they're worried they want to have something available? I mean, you know, Thanksgiving is the next big day, right? So, I mean, I just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I, I do wonder sometimes if these things are just like, automatic in right. there like well we have to do it it's 59 days and that's what we do at 59 days we we put the thing you know it's 60 days and at 60 days we do this uh and they Not don't even it's think one of about the biggest hits of all time and it's making 95 million dollars this week and you're talking about two weeks from now say it drops 50 percent for the next two weeks right so it's 45 48 million dollars and then 20 you're making 24 million dollars that weekend and then you're going to put it out why you're making 24 million dollars <laughs> i think you know, one of uh, Universal's claims is that this whole premium VOD uh, or early electronic sell-through is not cannibalizing the uh, theatrical grosses. In fact, it's adding to them. That, that was right. their claim. Yeah, and we that would believe them if they ever actually released any hard data that we could look at. Oh, they did. They did. Only, only uh, on select movies once in a while. 
They do not, right. we cannot, we do not get information on this regularly and consistently. So, and a part that of that case, has to do with, with profit participation. They don't want to be like, we're so sick. Oh, you right. have a performance bonus? Oh. They want to hide the money. That's right. another story later. Uh, so, no more bets made 140 million. Barbie, just under 100 million. Oppenheimer made another 70 million. That's past the $700 million mark. It's now at $718 million worldwide for a movie that costs $100 million to make. What a huge success story for Christopher Nolan. And Meg to the Trench, that's moving along. That made another $60 million this week. It's at $317 million worldwide. That's going to triple its budget, uh, so it's going to be just fine. Ghadar 2, that's an Indian film set during the early 70s during a war with Pakistan, between Pakistan and India. It's an action film where a father goes to rescue his son, and then the son, no, the son goes to rescue the father, and the, but the father's not there, and then the father has to go rescue the son. It's very exciting. $46 million this week, so it had great word of mouth. It's now at $60 million and counting. Here in North America, we have a new movie. It is Blue Beetle, the latest Marvel film, and... <laughs> it is opening to so-so numbers, $43 million, but I think it's getting good audience scores and people are really liking it. So this could be another Elemental, a movie that really shows legs. It only cost $100 million to make, so we're going to have to wait to see where it ends up, aren't we? Well, look at, look at, blue, look at uh, Elemental, well, you that's, know, sl- that's slowly over, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to more than double its money. It's not going to tr- it's not going to triple its budget, but it will certainly get to five hundred million dollars. So that's close enough to say, eh, I'm, I'm, it's like horseshoes. We'll take it. Uh, back to the movie. So Blue Beetle opened up forty three million dollars worldwide. The first Marvel movie with a Latin hero. That's very cool to see. I want to go check it out. It's the kid from uh, Cobra Kai. Well, it's DC, isn't it? It's not Marvel. Oh, bloody hell! First DC movie uh, with a, with a Latin hero. Is there a Marvel movie with a Latin hero? I don't know. I don't think we're so. Not, we're not Miles Morales? Back. Miles Morales? He is half black and half Puerto Rican, so I, that would count, absolutely. Um, certainly a person of color. And Blue Beetle is the first DC movie with... I, forgot, I thought it was a, a Marvel movie. I'm just crazy. You know, I think the problem is there are just too many of them, and people are really getting tired of them. I think. Well, that's what people are saying about it, but I think... You make a good movie, people will go see it. <laughs> I, I don't think people are sick. They're not sick of Westerns. They're not sick of anything. You just got to make it, you know? Yeah, it's the DC universe. I apologize for that. Uh, back in China, Creation of the Gods Part 1, this epic fantasy film based on a classic tale that everybody in, in Asia knows, certainly China, uh, that made another $35 million. It's at $325 million worldwide. In India, we have some news, we believe, on Jailer. This is a Tamil action film, the big hit in India right now. It made another $31 million this week. It's at $66 million worldwide. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. It's already sort of a hit in our minds, isn't it? You're like, oh, that was a success. It got good reviews. It opened well. Well, it made $23 million this week. It's at $120 million in counting. It needs to get to... To another hundred million or ninety million to be considered a pure box office success story, uh, but it's off to a good start. And it's a good movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's no, I haven't. Good. All right, Papa. Good. That's another movie in China. I have no idea what it's about, but it looks like it opened up to about twenty-four million dollars. That's more than Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. Nineteen million dollars this week. It's at five hundred and forty million dollars. This movie is not going to gross. $600 million worldwide at the box office. Coming off the tale of uh, Top Gun Maverick 
And the Mission Impossible franchise was never huge, but when you deliver critically and you seem to deliver commercially, it's kind of a, a, a real surprise, I think. And it's one of those things that it doesn't point to anything. You can't, you know, it just happens, right? Sometimes things just happen that way. I mean, there's just no explanation. It doesn't mean anything uh, other than this time, for some reason, people just stayed away. And it's one of the best Mission Impossible movies. I, I, I thought it was really good. Well, I thought it was good, too. Um, it's certainly one of my two or three favorite Mission Impossible movies, but none of them have been on my best of the year list, so I don't like them that much. And I feel like none of them are really in the spirit of the, of the show. You know, the show is about the caper and the thing. It's not about an action film, but they're basically action films. But yeah, the fourth one was probably the best, but still didn't quite make my best of the year list. Elemental, we mentioned before, that's at about $460 million worldwide. In India, it looks like OMG2... This Hindi comic drama uh, that made, I think, $14 million this week, and it's at $19 million worldwide. Now we have another new movie. It's Strays. It's a film about dogs with the voices of Will Ferrell and a bunch of other people. It opened to a modest $10 million. The general take seemed to be, it's kind of funny, but, you know, predictable. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like oh. Ted, that teddy bear movie with, with Mark Wahlberg or, uh, I don't know. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, what's his face? The uh, Seth MacFarlane, the Ted, Ted, yeah, yeah, the teddy bear movie with Mark Wahlberg. It's like you don't listen to me. I feel no, like no, we're married. I feel like we're married. No, what I'm saying, you said it with Mark Wahlberg, but it also starred Seth MacFarlane I, as the I said voice. Ted. Of Ted, yes, the Ted, the movie Ted, created by Seth MacFarlane, starring Mark Wahlberg. Oh, okay. You see, I, I immediately went to actors and uh, just skipped right over the fact that you mentioned Seth MacFarlane as the No, creator. I didn't, but I mentioned the movie and, and one of the stars, but you mentioned it like I hadn't mentioned the movie at all. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Another movie that's certainly not a hit is Haunted Mansion. Another $9 million this week. It's struggling to get to $100 million. It'll get there, but not much farther. Korea. We don't have a lot of information about Korea so far this week. It'll come in later today, but Concrete Utopia was the big movie that opened up last week. It made $11 million over the weekend. This week, it's made another $9 million, so a decent hold for that movie. It's now at $20 million and counting. Then we have two films that look like they opened up in China. One is called The Woman in the Storm. The other is called Death Notice. They both made about $8 million. I don't know really what they are, and I assume they're Chinese films, not movies from other territories opening up in China. But we know that One and Only is a Chinese film. It's a breakdancing flick. It made $8 million this week, and it's at $125 million and counting. Now, what is that movie that I just mentioned is opening up over the... Oh my God, we didn't even cover it, did we? Yeah, co opening up in a week or two. It's, a, it's an epic fantasy film from Asia, but it's not this movie, which I'd really like to see, which is Chang'an Sanwan Lee. This is a Chinese animated film. It's almost three hours long. It looks beautiful. The trailer looks like really good animation. It made another $7 million this week. It's at $250 million worldwide. I know Gran Turismo is going to open up uh, next weekend? Yes. Yes. On yes, Friday or Thursday, I guess. $6 million this week. It's at $17 million worldwide, and that's finally coming to North America, where people are like, what's Formula One? Oh, yeah, that show on Netflix. Actually, you know, uh, I just uh, got a, 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 a notice that an executive, an exhibition uh, executive who, who uh, left the business uh, a year or two ago to open a, a restaurant uh, group. He is now leaving that job to open a Formula One themed restaurant chain. 
Oh dear, what an awful and, idea. And you can you can actually like get in the cars. Oh and, god. And you know, they're like, you know, simulation racing. It's oh, pretty, oh. I can't remember the name of the, the restaurant. That sounds like it, an idea from forty years ago. <laughs> it really does. Like Planet Hollywood or something. That just sounds so outdated already. Especially when people can get such good quality um simulations in their home. Yeah, well, this would be, you know, a really good simulation in a restaurant. Right, I know. But still, that sounds, that sounds really like a yesterday's idea. Oh, well. Um, and we won't go through all the other movies. You can look at our chart, but Sound of Freedom, that truly is a phenomenon here in North America. Another $5 million this week, $178 million worldwide with many, many countries to go. We'll have to see how it does around the world. We're all opposed to child sex rings. So, yes, <laughs> that's true. We're all against it. And there's a number of movies like the Korean film Smugglers, the Telugu film Bola Shankar, the Korean thriller Ransomed, and the A24 horror flick Talk to Me, which I have a friend who says is really good. He really thought it was good. We don't have updated numbers on that, but we do have one number, and it's $50 million. That is okay, the estimated well. payday for Margot Robbie. Well, yeah, this is her Jack Nicholson moment. But here's what I think is interesting is in 1989, Jack Nicholson got $50 million for being in Batman, uh, the first Tim Burton uh, adaptation of Batman. Well, uh, because proof he, of how women are, you know, always at a lower <laughs> price than men. But this is her, he was a arguably a bigger star at that point and really brought a lot of heat to the Batman launch and... Uh, so, but Margot Robbie, a role of a lifetime. She made it happen. She made the movie. So, uh, money well earned. Yeah. Now, no, I agree. Will you go see Barbie again on National Cinema Day? I'm so excited. No, I will not, actually. What Maybe. is National Cinema Day? People don't even know. Remember, it happened last year. I've already forgotten about it, but it's back. But they don't so, want you to know about it. Well, they do. Uh, that's why they're letting you know right now. You know, they could have let you know on. Uh, Saturday, August 26th. But uh, right. so National Cinema Day, this was coming out of uh, the COVID pandemic last year. They wanted to try and get people back to cinemas. So they held a, a National Cinema Day over Labor Day. Uh, and it was... All tickets all, are three bucks, not to all t- IMAX, yeah. right? Not to no, IMAX. no, no. It was all tickets, all formats, all, you know. Oh, it was, great. And so the same thing, same exact uh, story this year. Uh, it's one week ahead of Labor Day. Uh, and you were asking me ahead of time, well, why don't they let people know months and weeks in advance? And well, they have tried that in other countries and it has fared quite poorly where people stopped going to the movies. Two I'm going to go in, in two weeks because I can right. only pay $4. And there was some question at, you know, at all these cinema summits, oh, you know, all these CinemaCon and Cine Europe, they'd always talk about, did National Cinema Day work? Uh, and you know, the studios were always like, well, we don't like lowering the price of our product. And, and of course, even the exhibitors were like, we don't, you know, we don't like lowering our price, but, uh, you, you know, do it all the time. You have one Tuesdays day. and matinees and all that. Why not? So it worked well enough last year to do it again. We'll have to see what happens. And you and have only- more films. You have way more films. There are films moving into that week. And I can't remember the film that we that think it's mo- bottoms. We think the yeah. R rated comedy bottoms, which I've had a lot of press from the, you know, a lot of pushing it saying, Hey, check out this raunchy R rated teen comedy or a college comedy. I forget what age they are, but that's the hip cool movie that it's an R rated comedy. They're a hard sell. Look at strays. And they think being out on the weekend of national cinema day might goose attention and attendance for it and give them good word of mouth. Right. 
That's the and idea. That's, we'll have and that's why see. you actually see, uh, you know, you saw um, the Formula One movie, Gran Turismo. Oh, you know, it's, it's had a sneak preview two weeks ago and then this weekend. And, it, uh, you know, you, that, this is why you're seeing that. You're, you're seeing people platform movies. Specifically, Sony is platforming movies like Dumb Money over, you know, kind of opening small, going a little wider the second week, and then going wide the third or fourth week. Well, d- doing a, uh, a sneak preview isn't platforming, is it? No, no not really. No. 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 They're, but they're trying to gain word of mouth. That, that was and, the goal. And I wouldn't call it platforming when you go from one weekend to the third weekend to a thousand plus screens. To me, platforming is really, you know, building it slowly. You know, when you say you're platforming, five screens, 200 screens, 3,000 screens. That's just like, you know, I don't know. It's sort of, a, it's sort of fancier previews. <laughs> you know, it's right. just like, but a platforming is like a Woody Allen movie, you know. 10 screens and then you let it build and build and word of mouth and edge it up to 50 screens and 100 and 200, you know, and they're all sold out and you're excited and you keep building it wider and wider over a period of weeks. But I guess that's how old I am, right? That stuff doesn't happen anymore. Everything has to happen quick. Yeah. Well, I I don't know what you're referring to. I feel like you're trying to, uh, no, no, I'm not at all. All I want to know is, uh, we were missing some Korean box office numbers. There were no updates on Korean cinema and you have a suggestion of why they might've been a little busy. Yeah, I think they're all talking to their lawyers. All the exhibitors <laughs> and distributors are talking to their lawyers, and the Korean uh, Film Council is actually counting each ticket individually. <laughs> they're um, making everybody call them up and say, yes, I went to the movies. So there's a big box office scandal over last week, like Thursday, boom, the hammer dropped. Um, apparently it's an open secret for years that exhibitors have been forcing producers and studios or whatever to buy blocks of tickets just to get booked into their theaters. That you want to play in our theater, you're going to have to do this, this, and this. Uh, apparently 69 executives from the top exhibitors and 24 and, and distributors and 24 distributors. Yeah. So the 69 plus 24 have been referred to prosecutors last week. The the legal side says that box office has been exaggerated for more than 300 films during the past five years. They point to ghost screenings uh, where like there's a late night or early morning screen that almost no one would normally attend. They're empty houses, yet somehow they're almost sold out. Uh, and that's where they're booking these tickets. Some say uh, major exhibitors did force bulk buying. However, like, well, the police don't really know the industry. You know, we have we have press screenings and VIP screenings and industry screenings to build buzz. They don't really understand what's going on here. They're like, well, yeah, there's been some bad behavior, but, you know, not all of it. Yeah, well, it's that they are, yeah. I don't know what the true story here is. I don't know why they would be doing this other than to goose the uh, the licensing uh, amount because of course licensing for television and ancillary markets is often based on what the theatrical box office but is. But the exhibitors wouldn't make that money, and they're saying the exhibitors are the ones forcing people to do this. That it's the big powerful, unless they're also also producing movies and releasing them in television. Well, the other thought is, well, you know, hey, a big movies a hit one week, and it'll like attract other viewers the following well, that's, week. That's that's what they're saying. Yeah, that they right. want to goose movies. Um, everyone agrees. There's very little transparency in the marketing budgets and where that money is going, and there's very weak oversight from the Korean Film Council. Hey. If you're from the Korean Film Council or you know the industry and have some better take on this than us, because we're way over here, tell us about it. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. 
the old-fashioned way, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at Showbiz Sandbox, and we are on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can find our page and like us. We, we like being liked. See what I did there? I used like twice. That was very good. Well, I am excited because I'm listening to my Billy Bragg song and supporting the unions because that's what you got to do right now. The union strikes are still going on, but there is good news for a change with the WGA. Yeah, well, they're actually talking. That was that's a start. You know, after three months, all the majors have been forced and uh, they are pretty much uh, now talking, if not daily, then more than uh, once a week. And this is the AMPTP and the WGA both East and West, really. Uh, and, you know, that's all you can really ask for. Apparently, uh, there was a rumor going around on Friday that a deal had been reached. And there's a reason not to believe rumors, because no deal had been reached. <laughs> that's right. But the, the writer, the unions are not uh, saying, all right, we're going to be, they you know, remember when they weren't talking, they're like, guess what? We've increased our demands. They weren't talking. They said, all right, you know what? We've got a different new demand. Now the WGA West, they're talking, but they say, you know what? They have reached out to the government. They have, uh, where has it? Uh, they're not done finding. They issued a report noting the dominance of Disney, Amazon, and Netflix. They say the dominance of these three companies has driven down wages and consumer choice, and they are calling upon antitrust regulators at the Justice Department to step in and block any further mergers and more closely monitor and investigate anti-competitive practices. So they're saying, yeah, don't. We're not done. You know, we've well, got a lot of bows in our quiver. Yeah, we've and this is actually a shot in our quiver. Yeah. It, uh, this is a shot across the bow because, yes, I thought this would take a much longer period of time. I thought 10 years from now, we're going to be talking about, you know, these vertical integrations. It's not, like, and I, I would get to say, hey, remember the Paramount consent decree? Remember that? <laughs> Give me my 25 cents. So I get 25 cents every time I say it. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, I think what the WGA is doing here is, looking at the future as well as the past and kind of going, hey, Paramount, you're going to have to merge with somebody. Warner Brothers and Comcast, there's a lot of talk about you guys merging. Well, uh, you know what? Let's just let the government know ahead of time before you guys start announcing this that that would be a bad idea. So maybe you should settle with us now and we'll have to stop writing these kinds of missives to our politicians. Yes, so that's uh, that's very interesting, and you got to say a paramount decree, which means we get another quarter, right? Yes, which maybe we're working our way into that, you know, Hollywood Reporter list of influential podcasters. Yes, well, you know, uh, the strike is dragging on. We know that the writers and the actors are united. The writers are saying we're not going to go back to work until the actors have a deal, and the actors are saying, I think, the same thing about the writers. And it's having an impact. You know, it's good to see them, their solidarity. But as we feared, there are a string of shows, especially in their first or second season, that are being canceled, right? Well, it's being, you know, kind of called, you know, they're saying, oh, it's because of the strike. But the reality is, yeah, it's probably they would have been canceled anyway. Well, no, for example, A League of Their Own was canceled. But then they said, all right, we're going to do a four-episode finale to wrap up the story of the TV series A League of Their Own. And now they're saying you know what, it's going to be too long and we're just going to dump it. So I think there are valid times where shows are on the bubble. It's easier to say, eh, keeping people on, on hold for a while and thinking the time has passed, you have to wait three years before a new season appears. 
it's a lot easier to say no thank you. So I do think it's the strike. I think it's having a real impact. It's also having an impact on the movies are getting made. SAG-AFTRA has clarified uh, some of their terms, again, showing solidarity with the writers. Their interim agreements for movies that are allowed to shoot right now is complicated. And there's been a lot of back and forth. People are like, why is this movie and not that movie? There's been a lot of confusion, but they're clarifying even more. They're saying, look, any project covered by the WGA cannot shoot. So if your project would be covered by the WGA in the U.S., you're not going to get an interim agreement. And that's another example of them trying to uh, show solidarity with the writers. Well, and let's face it, even if they cut a deal today, even they still, still would have to kind of work up the actual contract, get the voting materials out to the members. The board would have to ratify it first. Then the board would send the materials uh, out to the members. The members would have to vote. So you're talking about a, nobody. Nobody thinks it's going to, you know, you make a deal. It's done in an hour. No, but it's, it's at least a three-week process. And at that, that point, let's say the WGA at the end of September is ready to roll. Well, you still got SAG after to worry about. So part of the problem that, that everybody's talking about now is, hey, when this is over, because one day it will be, there's going to be, a, you know, for lack of a better word, a cluster F at the, at the end of this where we're all trying to find showrunners and trying to find, uh, you know, we all know True. this. That's why yeah. strikes are disruptive. That's why yeah. the studios should feel the pressure to come to terms and make a deal with people who are determined, who have seen the entire industry change and need new rules to reflect that and new agreements, which is not unreasonable. Besides, they're worried about being replaced by AI, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Uh, and uh, they will be. I mean, uh, who needs actors, really? Well, um, you do if you like copyright, don't you? Oh, yeah, about that. You know who can't get copyright? Who? A server, a computer. How 9000 cannot get copyright? I'm sorry, Dave. I can't get copyrighted. That's right. A federal judge sided with the Copyright Office and said works solely generated by artificial intelligence cannot be copyrighted. I immediately thought, well, well, big deal. They'll just do a workaround. You change a word, maybe a few adjectives, add a splash of color, and voila, it's AI-assisted. Or you wrote your screenplay with a little help, like a rhyming dictionary, but not so fast. The ruling actually states, an application for a work created with the help of AI can support a copyright claim if a human selected or arranged it in a sufficiently creative way that the resulting work constitutes an original work of authorship. Obviously, that'll get worked out in court at some point. Does it have to be 50% human and, or 51% human? Or how much arranging do they have to do? But they are making clear you can't take an AI-generated script, change an adjective, or change the title and say, done, <laughs> and get copyright. So, Which is uh, why none of our podcasts will ever be copyrighted because, of course, you know, I am AI. <laughs> and funnily enough, there was an earlier ruling that said a photo taken by a monkey. Somebody handed a monkey a camera and they took a photo and they said that can't be copyrighted, which, you know, King Why Kong not? is like, that's not fair. But yeah, that's very interesting. King so they, they really say you have to have human involvement to a significant level. And humans are involved in all this stuff all the time. And one more fallout from the strikes are the reality shows. They've been talking about unionizing, which is long overdue. They have some of the worst schedules for crews and actors, actors, crews and participants, some of the, you know, least compensation in terms of residuals or no compensation. And it's just really a, a cluster F, <laughs> right? And as some reality show stars are calling for a union so they can get fair compensation from all the great work they create, lawyers for people involved as cast and crew 
on shows that appear on Bravo, E, and CNBC are calling on NBC Universal to drop its quote unquote draconian non disclosure agreements. Uh, this is coming in the context of all sorts of allegations of improper behavior, even sexual violence on shows like Vanderpump Rules. So NDAs are another big problem, but this is the sort of thing you need a union for, to make sure you get compensation for residuals, to make sure you're not burdened with onerous contracts that are unfair or unreasonable. And, you know, that's why you want to do it. That's why I don't star in uh, reality shows. Good Period. call. But yeah. you know, you someday your movie maybe your life may be turned into a movie. And I don't know yeah, about well, you. I, I, I'm I'm already writing the screenplay. <laughs> no, I, Chat GPT is writing the screenplay. That's true. You're like, bye, Sperling Roy. Um, anyway, I don't know about you, but I got about eight hundred questions about the blind side over the last week. I People did like, as What's well. the deal with that? What's the deal? What do you think? What's going on? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know anything about them. All I know is I didn't like the movie. <laughs> you know, it was a it was a a a a, a movie I was not a fan of. Of course, um, so, it won uh, Sandra Bullock her Academy Award for absolutely. playing uh, the wife of a family that, uh, well, in the movie, took in a young a young took, black man and to made yeah. him part of their family and helped him achieve his dream of be, you know heading to the NFL and being a, a fully rounded person. It was a, a heartwarming, positive story of of white saviorhood, um, but that's okay. But the Super Bowl winner Michael Orr, I don't know how to say his name, but the man at the center of the blind side is suing the family or threatening to sue. I don't know if they filed papers No, no, no I think they, they did file suit. And oh, there you go. And he's saying, I was never actually adopted, which I didn't realize. Uh, I'm still under this conservatorship that went into effect when I was you know, a kid, and this is terrible, and they've made tons of money off the movie. We don't need to get into the this and that and the back and forth of the family and him, but there are two things I would point out. One is that his lawyer said, they got net points on the blind side. This family got net points on the blind side. Think of the money they made. <laughs> to which I would say, oh yeah, that's right. Um, the movie made $300 million. It cost $30 million to make. Subtract the one, add the two. Yeah, it's still uh, in the red. So you <laughs> exactly. owe the studio because that is Hollywood accounting. And yep. by the way, we have a story coming up. Stay tuned for more Hollywood accounting. M -I -C yeah, <laughs> exactly. M O U S C. Yes, um, so it's a shame. They've apparently been estranged from him for years. A story that people wanted to believe was a touching and happy one did not have a happy ending. All I will say is he's in his 30s, and it is weird that he's still under conservatorship, free Britney. So that's creepy. Why the heck would he be? He's an NFL, former NFL player. He's made tens of millions of dollars. Why would they still have a conservatorship over this adult man? So that's weird. And I also didn't like the deal they made, which I knew nothing about. Apparently, I think there was roughly 500000 divvied up for the rights to the story uh, that went to the family and him. Uh, after, of course, the book was written by Michael Lewis. Um, but like the dad got 100,000, the mom got 100,000, the son got 100,000, the daughter got 100,000, and Michael, the person that they took in, got 100,000. To which I'd say, really? Like they're already multimillionaires, like literally hundreds of millions. Like the dad sold his business for like more than $200 million. So they are multimillionaire family. At the time, they were already wealthy. And why would it not be 50 50? You know? Like, well, we don't life, really, really know. We don't yeah, really we don't know. know. Well, that uh, said, Michael Lewis came out and said, uh, now the, the movie was based on the book that Michael Lewis wrote about this right, family. Who was close friend of the family and also mocked the man's intelligence. Yes. Uh, and basically said, uh, you look, you know, they got paid for the rights when I wrote the book. 
They were not a part of the movie deal at all. So this is, you know, I don't know. No, where... they weren't paid five hundred thousand dollars for him to write a book. No, no, they they got a contract that said if it was made into a movie, they would get a certain amount of money. And it was not divided 50-50, which I think I would have done just off the top of my head. It's like, surely he should get half and the family should get half, not they get 80% and he gets 20%. It's his story, for God's sake. Nobody cares about them. So that was my instinctive reaction. And to be fair, I think Michael Lewis tried to commend him because this man did try in college to have an actual degree in journalism rather than going the jock route of taking whatever the easy courses were that this university funnels you into. It turns out he ended up with that easy degree because they don't want you studying. They want you focused on football. And it did lead to an NFL career. But there's no incentive for them to care about your education when you're a college football player. And he was trying to get a real degree in some other subject where he was taking classes with regular students, but that dream fell apart in the pressure to achieve and succeed and make it to the NFL, which he did. And he made tens of millions of dollars and has a Super Bowl ring. So Michael Lewis was really critiquing the colleges as, as much as him, but it was an ugly joke that I saw online, but he tried to make up for that. But nonetheless, he's a friend of the family. We don't know the deals, but why the hell is he under a conservatorship? And his lawyers thinking that he's going to be making money off net points is ridiculous. Just goes to show that they don't know anything about Hollywood. Yeah, well, that's very true. Yeah, uh, but you we know, do know about Iran, don't we? Yeah, well, and I, initially I thought uh, this Saeed Rustai, uh, who is the director of Layla's Brothers, which I saw in Cannes. I don't know if you saw this. It's a very long movie. Uh, and it is, it's got lots of talking in it. Lots of talk. I mean, too much talking. You sound like Logan Paul, the online personality. He went to see Oppenheimer and you see, he walked out cause they were just talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a movie about uh, They're talking come on. for God's sake. Where are the no, car well, crashes? <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, as, as somebody who's reading the movie, because effectively that's what I'm doing in, in an Iranian movie, we're reading, uh, and it's a movie about the, these four brothers and this, this guy who wants to be a, the father wants to be a patriarch, but, uh, it's very complicated, but a very engaging story. Uh, the father's kind of, kind of, uh, he wants to give 40 gold coins for a wedding. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it was a pretty good movie. And it did win the yeah. Fapishi's prize. I don't know how to for, say it. Fapresky. Yeah, it won the Fapresky. So yeah. that, that's nice. And I thought, oh, there must have been some content in the film that got them in trouble. But no. While accepting that award at Cannes, the director said it was in honor of the victims of a building collapse in the city of Abadan. And it turns out that was an ongoing scandal in Iran that was really rocking the country since it had occurred just a few days earlier. It's involved corruption, public protests, and more. And commenting on it was seen as critiquing the government because if the government's corrupt and they allow building codes to be done when they shouldn't be in this building that was being made collapsed and killed people and everybody was outraged. Uh, but as if that's not enough, while I'm looking up this film and trying to figure out what they, he was thrown into jail for. So he's been thrown into jail. They're going to serve like nine days, but they're going to be on probation for the next five years and they can't make any movies or talk to anybody. Well, and it's a six month sentence, right? It's a six month sentence that, that, uh, but they're that only serving. Being, yes, but they're going to yes, be on probation for five years and they'll only be in jail for nine days, and they'll be on probation for the next five years. So that six-month sentence will be, you know, they'll be out on bond for five years, and they can't make any movies for the next five years. And you think, wow. But 
Turns out, two of the actors in the film, just to make it all about everything, were charged with sexually assaulting two women, including an assistant director on the film. At Khan, other actors refused to appear on the red carpet with them, and a famous Iranian actress said publicly that one of them assaulted her 25 years earlier. This movie story has everything. <laughs> Good Lord. So Not to laugh. I'm, yeah, but, uh... I shouldn't laugh. Brave, you know, props to the women who came forward and spoke out about this, so that's great for them. Uh, hopefully... Uh, Justice will be done in whatever way it should be done. I don't know the whole story, but anytime some women step forward, you want to listen to them and take them seriously. Uh, but so it's a big mess, I must say. But, you know, it's also a, not a big deal because Iran is a country that's not a democracy. You can't expect fair play. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's not a big... Oh, wait. You see, I didn't catch that you said big and deal together, which means it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, here's one more reason why you should not, okay, I want to emphasize not hire Michael as your lawyer. I object. Well, Okay, just hear me out. The Uh, Internet Archives was sued by publishers for its lending practices. The Internet Archive bought a print edition of a book and then would, upon request, loan out an e-version of the title, really a PDF that they made. At the same time that that was being loaned out, that book was being loaned out, they would set aside the print copy until the e-version was returned. So it bought a book and loaned out a version of the book, but only one at a time. It didn't make a thousand copies and loan them out all at once. One loaner per title at a time. Fair use, said Michael. Infringement, said the judge. Uh, It's clear that purchasing a print edition of a book does not authorize you to make a different version on your own and lend that alternative version out, said the judge. Yeah. uh, However, the IA won a final tiny little victory. The judge sided with them and said the ruling applies only, only to books that are also commercially available in editions. But the Internet Archive is not done. It will appeal the ruling, and owners of copyrights aren't done either. A group of major record labels is also suing the IA over its Great 78 program, which makes available some 400,000 vintage 78 RPM recordings to users all over the world. Fair use, Michael? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? I apologize. I mistyped there. Um, the ruling only applies to books that are available as ebooks. So ah, okay. if there's no ebook version available, they can do this, at least for the moment. It doesn't rule on whether that would be appropriate or not, because there was no evidence introduced about that possibility and what that might mean. And so that would have to come up in another court case. The publishers are like, well, you better not. <laughs> and the Internet Archive is like, we will. <laughs> so there you go. I must say, I strongly disagree with the judge. I guess I would see it slightly differently if it was an audiobook version, because that's a performance. And now you're adapting the book in a way just by choosing someone to read it. You're really performing the book. And so that's going to change whether it's a man or a woman or a group of people and how you choose to do it. And do you do the whole book or abridge it? Whereas the uh, ebook version is just presenting the title of text in a different way that's more convenient for your customer. I really do think they have a good argument, and this case will be appealed. The 78 program, I immediately went to the Internet Archive and looked at its great 78, 400,000 plus vintage 78 RPMs. It's oh, true. they must sound great. They must sound amazing. Most of them have not been, of course... Um, 
available. Uh, uh, no, have not been remastered, like you say. Uh, but the Internet Archive says when people want to listen to music, they go to Spotify. When people want to study sound recordings as they were originally created, they go to libraries like the Internet Archive. Both are needed. There shouldn't be conflict here. In, or, in other words, nobody is going to the Internet Archive to listen to an old 78 from 1932 to avoid buying a Spotify subscription. And that is 100% true. More so, there isn't a single track I could find, and I looked at five or ten random titles, that isn't already available on YouTube. Now, they would say, well, they're licensed and YouTube pays copyright. So it's like, yes, but this is not a commercial enterprise. It's like a library. Uh, you know, uh, you don't ever want to let the barn door open because if you allow this, then maybe people will do that and you have to worry. Maybe they'll create a streaming service of old 78 RPMs. But, you know, it's, I don't know. I have to say, um, they're all available on YouTube as far as I can see. I do think that ruling is wrong. I can't see any reason why you buy a copy of a book, you can't lend it out by making a PDF of it who, or Xeroxing and handing that to someone rather than the, the physical copy itself as long as you're not and lending it out twice. So we'll have to see where it ends up on uh, appeal. Maybe I will be you know, justified in the end. Well, okay, then maybe TPG could hire you as their lawyer. <laughs> and here's why. Uh, Disney and its Fox subsidiary is being sued for funny accounting practices. Welcome to Hollywood, TPG. I mean, come on. Of course, it's funny accounting. They call it Hollywood accounting for a reason. Uh, the film financing company, TSG, or did I say TPG? I don't know what I said, but, you know, TSG, we'll give you Michael's number. You can use, use him as your lawyer. Yes. Uh, TSG says Disney was cutting sweetheart deals by putting films like Avatar The Way of Water on its streaming service at bargain prices. TSG isn't new to the game. It's invested more than $3 billion over the years in at least 140 films, including X-Men, Deadpool, and even Artie Fair like The Banshees of Inishirin. When the profits slowed to a trickle, TSG hired an outside accounting firm, and looking at just three films, they claim to have spotted endless examples of Hollywood accounting. They'll head to court, and the books will be open for everyone to see. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's never going to happen. This will settle. Uh, the suit will be settled long before. Yeah, as you said, yeah, the suit's going to be settled. Uh, big deal or big whoop? For that reason, it's a big whoop. Uh, to clarify, Fox had some deal with movies going to HBO, and that morphed into a deal for them all to appear on Disney Plus at very cheap rates. So they're arguing that Disney's uh, self-dealing, just like Scarlett Johansson did, and we'll have you know with taking movies straight to um, streaming. Of course, this is a different issue, and it's over years. I mean, it's TSG. They're giving you billions of dollars. Are you really trying to screw them out of money? I mean, the, the desire to self-deal, I guess, is so strong, you can't help doing it. Well, also keep in mind that the, the people who are self-dealing, uh, you know, kind of putting uh, one, one asset into another basket, uh, you know, into another asset basket, aren't really uh, privy to the deals that TSG, you know, they're not exactly paying attention necessarily all of them all the time. And so they're doing what they do with all their stuff, you know, whether they're self-financed or whether they have a slate deal with somebody. They just Well, there's always some outside person with, inv with financial interest in the movie, the producer, the actor. There's right. virtually no film just ask scarlett johansson right there's I mean, virtually no film where they can justify not caring because nobody else is involved right so they're always ripping somebody off if in fact that's what they're doing right well i i think uh this is going to be you know it was the paramount consent decree another 25 cents was established because the studios owned the movie theaters and that was you know vertically integrated in that regard 
And now so they own the movies, case, they own the ta- cable the, the company stre- and the network and the streaming service. Right. And so, you know, take the movie theaters out of the equation. They have the movie theaters of the 21st century, the streaming service. Mm-hmm. We should have had so, Jonathan Handel on this week. Every story is about a lawsuit. Really? Well, here you go. Oh, yeah, that's true. But we have our own in-house attorney, Michael Giltz. <laughs> Uh, okay, this one is interesting. Sound Exchange Performing Rights Organization. We've talked about them in the past. They are suing SiriusXM for $150 million for underpaying royalties. Now, this is kind of interesting and kind of tricky. As explained by Music Business Worldwide, Sirius pays a significantly lower royalty rate for webcasting. By the way, that's true of all webcasters. They pay a lower royalty rate than the broadcasters. So rather than satellite radio to your car, Right, they have a website where you can access their shows. So if you're in your car, they pay one royalty rate. If you're listening to their device, it's another. If you go online to their website that you have access to if you're a subscriber, they pay a much lower rate. Why? Well, because no one knows how many people are listening to a satellite radio channel at any time, while they do know exactly how many people are streaming a webcast. SoundExchange says Sirius changes nothing for its, or charges nothing, really, for its webcasting to existing subscribers. Not true. So the webcasting should properly constitute minimal revenue. Instead, my brother doesn't. My brother doesn't pay anything extra to access it online. Oh, do you? Let me, let me, let me finish. Uh, Instead, uh, you know, SiriusXM claims almost 18% of gross revenue comes from webcasting. And nobody subscribes to SiriusXM to access the website. It's all about your car. Right. Uh, That means uh, it's avoided paying uh, at least $150 million in royalties. So big deal or big whoop. Well, tell me what your Sirius contract is. Uh, I think you can... um, you know, you get it for the car, obviously, right? And then if you want to get uh, web radio, you know, online radio, then you have to pay like three ninety nine extra a month or you have to get a different kind of plan. And that, is, and by the way, you say nobody subscribes to it for uh, the webcasting. However, because of Sonos and because of uh, restaurants who use Sonos. And not, no, restaurants well, yeah, is a totally different issue. Uh, Sirius X, you know, I hear Sirius XM being played at restaurants. But that's and a they totally different contract. That's a totally different issue. They would have well, a blanket license. Well, because that's license. a commercial contract. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. a completely different thing. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, I, even if I didn't have Sirius XM in the car, would I use it just for, just for the online? Probably not. No, I, I will say probably not. But you can get just did you pay just for the, the online radio? And by the way, every time I say Sirius XM, Apple uh, thinks I'm saying Siri. So did you pay for it? Did you pay for access to it uh, on the webcasting? Have you paid for that? You have Sirius XM in your car. Did you pay for it to have it accessed on the webcast? I think I have, and I, I think <laughs> I had to pay for a more expensive version. Of Sirius XM for the car to get the webcasting. So in a sense, they're saying they're I not thought saying, it was. Oh. I thought it was for. Um, I thought it was for a device in your home as opposed to webcasting, which I thought was different. Oh no, no! They're basically saying like, no, if you want to, um, if you want to have, if you want to have it in your car too, then you have to, uh, you know you have to pay a little extra. I mean, sorry, if you want to have it not only in your car but on. Uh, on the, the web, then you have to pay a little extra. 
See, I only see car plus streaming devices or streaming devices only. That's it. Uh, oh, well, to, maybe maybe I need to look at it. You so, know, maybe I need and, to start and, looking. And they're at claiming twenty percent of their business is coming from streaming devices only, or, or somehow they're saying twenty percent of their business, even though you have it on the car and you don't even know if you're getting it in the home. You can just get a hundred channels for five dollars a month. You can get four hundred channels for eight dollars a month for the first three months, and then you've got uh, then you've got uh, four hundred twenty-five channels for eleven dollars a month on streaming devices only if you're doing it in the car and none of these are available outside the u.s so that's right kind then of if it's a car it's 24 dollars a month uh for fewer channels it's 19 and then for just a few it's 14 so 14 to 24 dollars for car radio and streaming so it's significantly more if you're in the car you know that's their main business and they're saying no way are they getting 20 percent of their business from streaming but of course we'd have to know the numbers yeah, well, and I think that they're trying to, you know, they bought Pandora, right? So, well, let's just remember that. Sound Exchange sued Sirius XM a decade ago in 2013, and they settled for, you know, underpaying or somehow ripping them off, and they settled the lawsuit for $150 million. <laughs> so they have a good track record here, don't they? Oh, so uh, maybe they know exactly how much uh, they're willing to pay. Well, here, let me do inside baseball because uh, it's uh, something we've talked about before. Maybe you can say something different than me. Uh, it is time for inside baseball where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. We've been talking about this for ages and it's finally happened. For years, Sperling and I have poo-pooed cries of cord cutting. I mean, yes, people are cutting the cord, but they haven't stopped watching TV. They're just watching it in new ways. They're streaming shows on platforms rather than sitting in front of the boob tube at 9 p.m. on a Tuesday like a dutiful robot. I did like that show, iRobot. And those new ways are taking over the world. Nielsen measures TV consumption by platform in the U.S. And for the first time in history, okay, for the first time in two years that they've been doing this, broadcast and cable make up less than 50% of total viewing. Now, to be clear, Nelson is, Nielsen is measuring TV consumption for the U.S. via smart TV. They're not covering people like me who watch TV via their laptop or tablet or phone. So this has probably already been true for months, if not a year's uh, that in the real world, most people have been watching TV via streaming and their laptop and stuff rather than sitting in front of the television or cable channel and watching it when we're told to. So in July, streaming hit an all-time high of 38.7%. That's Netflix, Paramount+, Plus, Disney+, Plus, and the like. Thanks in part to reruns of the USA drama Suits which is setting records. Cable dropped to 29.6%. And no, I can't complain about not rounding that number up to an easier to follow 30%. Why? Because broadcast was exactly 20% of all platform viewing. So if you add cable and broadcast, the traditional way to watch TV for the past 40 years is precisely 49.6% of all viewing in July. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been watching movies and TV shows on my laptop for several years now. So I have already had transitioned away from watching stuff on cable, even using a DVR. You know, even that is included in cable and TV. When you DVR something and watch it via your cable or TV device, that still counts as traditional viewing. 
But in this case, they're saying, guess what? All bets are off officially. Even for people who are just accessing programming via their smart TV, most people are streaming or doing something else like playing video games and you know, watching uh, video on demand uh, via you know, buying a Barbie download when that's available or, and other things that are non-traditional television. So is this a big deal? What's going on here? Do you think like, well, I thought this already happened. Do you think this is interesting? What do you think? Well, it seems like every week we are talking about this subject mm -hmm. and it seems like it's been going on for a long time as, as I've mentioned before. Uh, it's just that now people are measuring it and only, it's kind of only like, in I, a partial way, right? Yeah, and correct. this is why they're striking. Everything has changed. Everything, the way people watch TV, the way people watch movies, the way they do everything has changed. The deals, the types of shows are made, how long they run for, how many episodes they make, the size of the writer's rooms, the number of actors you need. Everything has changed, and the contracts and the deals between the unions and the studios need to change as well. And here's, but here's a funny thing. The show that made this happen in part, it happened in July, and the show that's out there is Suits, the USA show. It wasn't Stranger Things. It wasn't Wednesday. It wasn't the Lord of the Rings prequel or that Game of Thrones spinoff. It's Suits, a show that, as Alan Sepinwall at Rolling Stone points out, is precisely the kind of show that Netflix and other streamers aren't making, even though audiences clearly crave it. It's easily digestible. You can watch it while doing something else. You can dip in, and they got lots of episodes. And that's why it's been setting records week after week after week. Suits just reached another 3 billion minutes in this tiny measurement that doesn't even cover it all. And that's because people like this type of show. It's not the only type they like. I'm watching Silo on Apple+. Plus. Ten episodes, a very, you know, tightly scripted show you have to pay attention you're gonna watch it it's got to be you can't watch one episode and come back months later you got to watch every episode in order right it's that kind of show it's that serialized drama where you pay attention it's 10 episodes and you get a satisfying season suits is a show where they made 22 episodes at a time and you can watch them pretty much in any order sure there's an arc vaguely overall but it's the type of show that networks and cable have done really really well and which netflix and apple plus and hbo max aren't so interested in what's that show on peacock that that crime show that's sort of like a, a callback to columbo Remember I that show? I have no idea. You're yeah, assuming I watch Peacock. No, it's, I don't. It's, it's, that, it's that show that's sort of a modern remake of Columbo. You keep talking okay. and I'll look it up. But yeah, well, that's, well, that he, show he, is sort of like what we're talking about. The show that you can watch in any order. It's, it's friendly TV. and it's, I, I liken all of this to the difference between CDs and, uh, and streaming. I mean, it used to be you wanted to listen to music. You played a CD. You had to have the CD right? Poker then, face, Natasha Leon, poker face on Peacock. I know a lot of people who like it. It's comfort television, like suits and other stuff. So they are sometimes making it. But when you say you had to w listen to a CD, you also had to decide to go out and buy it for $15. Correct. So I, in this case, I would have to decide to sit down and watch the 8, p 8 uh, p.m. show, or alternatively, I would have to sit down and program my DVR to record the 8 p.m. show, and then I would have to go and time shift it and watch it when I wanted to, or mm -hmm. record it on VHS, which, you know, brings me back to the 80s. But now, a CD, I wouldn't even know how to play it. I don't have anything that could actually play a CD. My car can. So it's, yeah, well, exactly. So now, I guess I look at it and go, well, of course, you know, yes, the way people consume media 
is shifting. It's shifting away from, you know, a, a cable or satellite connection to streaming, which is why AT&T wanted to buy Warner Brothers. That didn't work out so well. <laughs> it's why Com- uh, Comcast bought NBC Universal. That's, you know, remains to be seen whether it's working out so well, <laughs> but... It's sort of the end of an era, and we're coming late to the game because if we were having a true measurement of audience, we would have said this era came ages ago. I I thought it did. I mean, I'll be honest. When I when I saw, I was like, "Well, you mean this this didn't happen?" Okay, I thought this was a long time ago. Okay. (laughs) Well, and you know, when you look at the streamers, uh, you know, people are paying a lot of money to get about ten channels. Right. And now they want to yank their libraries from you and they're saying, oh, we don't want you to have the whole library. It's too expensive to maintain. So even that dream is gone. There's so many shows that are slipping through the cracks. But, you know, when you're looking at streaming, YouTube is still number one. 9% of all viewing that we talk about for this month, or I think it's for a quarter, actually. Netflix is right there, 8.5%. Then you drop way down. Hulu, 3.6%. Prime Video, 3.4%. I can't believe Disney Plus is not bigger than Prime Video. That really surprises me. Disney Plus is at 2%. Max is only at 1.4%. Guess what? They only made shows for one night a week. Sundays, you know, they don't have a ton of content. Once you've seen The Sopranos, you've seen The Sopranos. Tubi, 1.4%. Peacock, Roku, Paramount, Pluto, you know. And then all other stuff, video on demand, audio streaming, gaming, watching a Blu-ray or DVD, that's 5% of streaming. Uh, but everything comes around again. By the way, The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. For some reason, they are still releasing this show on DVD and Blu-ray. Seasons 13 and 14, the final two seasons of what was the longest-running uh, live-action sitcom of all time until uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia kind of passed it up. That show is just coming out on September 26 on DVD and Blu-ray. They've remastered it from the original 35-millimeter negatives who the heck is buying The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet? How is that a business deal that like, yep, we got to put that on a DVD. You got to get it out there. I mean, it is available to stream. You can watch it, I believe, on Amazon and some other sites, at least in some of the seasons or a lot of the seasons. Uh, but, you know, there's still people buying DVD and Blu-ray because guess what? A lot of shows won't be available forever on those streaming services. So if you want to see them, there won't be cable channels around showing them all the time. Not every show is going to get a fast channel. So you're out of luck unless you own it on DVD and Blu-ray. So I guess, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm waiting for uh, DVDs to come back as like the vinyl of, of uh, video streaming. Well, they already are. They're like- putting out Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. There are so many movies that have fallen through the cracks. I have like 500 or 1,000 DVDs and Blu-rays. They're mostly stuff that I think wasn't available at the time when I saved them on, on streaming or the stuff that probably isn't available now or isn't easily available. And plus, they have all the extras. There's a lot of stuff I have that you cannot call up and watch, like Police Squad, the great sitcom from the creators of Airplane, uh, American Dreams, which is half box sets and half me recorded off the TV onto a DVD because they've never released it on DVD and Blu-ray. It's not available on streaming because it's too expensive because of the music rights. There's a ton of stuff that will fall through the cracks if you don't own it on DVD and Blu-ray. Well, and today uh, I watched uh, Jean Baptiste on, uh, I think it was Instagram, and he was like looking at, he has a new album out, right? And he's mm-hmm. like looking at all the vinyl copies of it. He's like, oh, look, guys, vinyl, vinyl. I'm like, oh, he's trying to get people to buy his, his vinyl version of this. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I, I'll stream it because I don't have a record player, but 
Yeah, okay. Well, that's on you, dude. Oh, I know. I'm totally not hip you, anymore. But you used to say you would buy stuff on CD if you really liked the act, you really oh, yeah, liked no, the album. No, that is true, actually. I, I, I like doing that, um, and I should probably start doing it again. Yeah, I mean, if you like his album, buy it on CD. You know, if you don't need to have a, a war, but at least buy yourself a Bose radio CD player or something so you can play it sometime. I mean, CDs aren't yeah. dead. Yeah, oh, best you I know what do. is? Best yeah, okay. Well, that, that brings us to actually some of our obituaries. Uh, we have a number of them. Uh, Ron Cheapus Jones, I guess he must have... Ju- uh, this is new to me. I didn't know that this had happened. Is this, is this today? No, it's a few days ago. He just died at 66, of course. He acted on stage and screen, but his big success is winning the Emmy for the hit drama This Is Us. He was just Tony nominated last year, though. For Oh, his- yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. And of course, a big one, label exec and Grammy winner Jerry Moss died at 88. This is the biggest one of the week. I mean, in- well, it's not a race. It's not a competition. True. I mean, when you put it that way. <laughs> but yeah, we've got great notes in here about uh, some great stories about how they always put the artist first. Um, he's, you know, co-founder of A&M Records, uh, you name it, <laughs> you know, the police, Carol King, Peter Frampton, the uh, Go Go's, the Carpenters, Janet Jackson, Soundgarden, Cat Stevens, Squeeze, Joe Jackson. They were just selling the company to Polygram for half a billion dollars. And on the way out the door, they had one last signing, Cheryl Crow. <laughs> so it's like just for fun. Yeah, they had it going on, I have to say. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As I was reading Sting's appreciation of him in Billboard magazine, the police song Message in a Bottle started playing on the radio their first UK number one. And I have to say, thanks to Roger Friedman at his website, Showbiz411, we also know that music industry lawyer Abe Summer died at 85. Everybody talked about Jerry Moss, but you really got to be in the know to know Abe Summer. Uh, He flew Jerry Moss so Moss could check out Joe Cocker at Woodstock and sign him. Summer was the lawyer for the Rolling Stones when they signed what was the biggest record deal in history when heading to Atlantic. He invited Clive Davis to the concert at Monterey, where Davis would famously watch Janis Joplin perform and then sign her right when she got off the stage. And Summer knew everyone and was good friends with Jerry Moss and Clarence Avant, who died. Uh, we had him covered last week. All three of them died within days of each other. Jerry Moss, Clarence Avant, and Abe Summer. And it's really the end of an era. I mean, they're all, you know, major figures in rock and roll. And if you're in the UK, you love UK talk show host Michael Parkinson. He died at 88. He's probably the UK equivalent of Johnny Carson or Barbara Walters. He spoke to everyone. You can even see him on the cover of the Paul McCartney album, Band on the Run. Uh, He just did it for decades. And opera legend Renata Scotto died at 89. I'm sorry, Sperlin, but I love this too much. She feuded with Maria Callas. She chided Luciano Pavarotti for elbowing everyone aside to take extra bows. She was praised for her intensity and thoughtfulness as an actor as much, if not even more, than her voice. Placido Domingo once said, Renata is the closest I have ever worked with, a real singing actress. When, and they weren't necessarily friendly. Oh, no, no. no I, I mean, I don't know that they weren't, but uh, she and Pavarotti didn't get along, certainly. That's and, what I mean. And she, was, yeah. she had elbows. When La Scala's manager failed to deliver a promised role, she refused to work there until he was gone and kept it like for years. When the Met, the Metropolitan Opera, they offered her the same parts year after year. And she's like, can I do some new roles? And they just didn't give them to her. She never returned there until he was gone. 
But she and James Levine got along famously, and she reigned over the Met throughout the 70s and early 80s. Uh, she performed Madame Butterfly in Central Park to more than 100,000 people in 1975. And you'll like this, Sperling. In 1977, she helped the Met break new ground with the launch of Live from the Metropolitan Opera, a live series on PBS that premiered with her and Pavarotti in La Boheme. It was a huge success, and as she later said, more people saw La Boheme that one night on PBS than all previous audiences combined throughout history. But when she saw how fat she looked on camera, she lost 30 pounds and kept it off for the rest of her career. Quote, some people worry that losing weight might hurt the voice, and I say, nonsense, that is a myth to protect the fat singers, she said. <laughs> it's a great obit by the New York Times writer Jonathan Candle. Um, so check that out. And in related opera news, the Metropolitan Opera Guild is also basically dead. It was a friend of the Met. It published opera news for almost 190 years. Certainly, it was launched in 1935. So one more sign of how opera is on life support, as it has been for so many years. But what, what, what did you think of that? Did you know about the, the Opera Guild? Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, I love opera. Yeah. My friend in college, because, Jesse, um, would be playing Texaco at the Met. Uh, every Saturday afternoon. And so that was my first exposure to opera and to Doctor Who because we'd watch that on PBS later in the day. So uh, I've been familiar with the Metropolitan Opera News and uh, the Guild for years. I never belonged, but uh, I'm well aware of it. I just, I, I never really, and I was like, wait, so you have the Metropolitan Opera and you have this guild. They're the friends of the Met. That, it's like having a friend yeah. of the museum. You know, it's just a wealthy people who want to support the museum or the institute. And so they have the little society and they get to have fundraisers and do things. And in this case, they put out the uh, opera news, which, you know, it only had like tens of thousands of circulation, modest 40, circulation. 45,000. But they're 40, all wealthy people who love the opera. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's a shame to see. But it's a, a f fun career. And we began with an insult of, of heavyset people, and we end with a, a, a woman talking about fat people again. So apologies to our uh, plus-sized audience members. And if you want us to be plus-sized with our audience, tell other people to check us out. Yeah, and uh, by the way, if you listen, and, and it really helps us out when you tell friends about, uh, about our program here, uh, but, you know, because, uh, and really, now I feel great, actually, because now that Renata Scotto tells me that I don't have to lose weight to be a good podcaster. <laughs> That's right. There's, I'm going well, out no, she said, she said, don't worry about losing the weight. She says, oh. it's a lie that you have to be heavy to be a good opera singer. Uh, oh. and, and it's a lie that you have to look good in order to be a podcaster. That's why we are podcasters. That's right. Uh, now, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, links to uh, ways to subscribe to us. That is actually how you can refer people to it. They just have them subscribe on iTunes or maybe it's Apple Podcasts. I don't know if iTunes even exists anymore. Uh, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, uh, I believe... Stitcher's going away, if I'm not mistaken. Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. We should really update this list to the latest and greatest podcast aggregators. Um, but hey, subscribe to the show. Rate and review the show in any one of those aggregators that allows you to do so. You can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where all those links from today's stories can be found, as well as ways to subscribe to us. Dirt at showbiz subscribe no ways to contact us dirt at showbizsandbox.com that's d-i-r-t at showbizsandbox.com 
Com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz is a website and every week it is something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's What's Opera, Doc? Dot com. Ooh. Oh, that's yeah. probably taken, but if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work can be found. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>